Hello all, welcome to the uh, the first Q&A type episode of the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, I'm Callum, otherwise known as CR Physique on most of the social media platforms. I have Luke with me. Luke, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. How are you, sir? Um, good, mate, good. Luke is known as Biophysiques, as you'll know uh, from his recent increased activity on social media. Um, just letting, letting everyone know how clever he is. Um, luckily, I have him by my side. Um, but the, the general premise of what we're going to do here is we're essentially going to run with some longer topics that will spread over three or four podcasts. And they'll be within the realm of 60 to 90 minutes long each. And they'll be going through, pod, they'll be going through topics in much more detail. Um, the idea here is we're going to start to accumulate some questions and some key topics that people want to cover off social media. Um, off emails and even clients we're working with, um, things that will be of relevance to you, things that will add value. And we're basically going to have more of a quick fire turnaround over topics. So within a 40 to 60 minute podcast, we can get through multiple subject matters and give you value um, that's absorbable and digestible, but don't completely overwhelm you. Um, Luke, what are your thoughts on, on the matter? Because I know you've had some ideas moving forward. Yeah, um, essentially how Callum's laid it out, um, we, we, we'll spend the, the bulk of the podcast is going to be going through some bigger topics in a lot of depth. But the the difference in those topics is that we will, or on those episodes, is that the, the we'll, we'll give a lot of information and there'll be a lot of practical linkage going on to what with regards to the coaching practice and stuff like that. But with, with regards to the actual uh, like bits of uh, the the process where you'll be able to like directly apply it to your coaching. It will be more of a case of we'll be trying to inspire you to think of it yourself as opposed to just hand like spoon feeding it to you. And um, and that will be like when, when like later this year we're going to do a couple of seminars and then you know next year we'll, we'll do a series of seminars and um and that will be where we get stuck more into the the actual going into the coaching process and. and going in depth with the actual practical applications of stuff but the the podcast will serve as more of a a, a platform to just help generate thought really and and improve your your own coaching practice through through your ability to take in and, and contextualize information basically yeah and like just to like break it out in layman's terms, like everyone's here for the same reason. Everyone wants to get better. Everyone wants to absorb more knowledge. And we're in the same boat as everyone listening to this. Um, we've got multiple people and a really cool network that we're building for um, people that will come on and speak and give value on their chosen subjects um, within their fields of expertise. So this will basically be us collating a lot of information into one hub um, and providing it to you in an absorbable and digestible manner. Um, that you can go away and basically practice yourself within your own coaching practices or yourself within your own training. Um, that's the ultimate goal and the vision we have. And to, just to optimize everything you're doing, just like we've tried to ourselves over the last couple of years. And this is something that, you know, me like two or three years ago when I was entering the industry, this is something that I would have loved to have as a resource around me and to build a network of people that are all on the same, same page, a network of like-minded people that just want to get better. So that is the vision. That's what we're going to do. Um, and yeah, just uh, come along for the ride. Um, this podcast at the moment, initially, um, I put up an Instagram story about three hours ago, 
Um, I have four questions. I'm not going to bullshit and say oh, I've got like 9,000 questions. Um, I've got four questions. They're good topics. We've got a few other topics that we're going to start to go through as well. Um, do you want to get stuck in now, Luke? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we'll, we'll dive in right now. Um, topic number one. Um, so, do you want to talk about the taurine one first? Let's say that one to last because that will peel off into the whole bile talk. Okay. Um, is there an ideal amount of veg per meal you would aim for for somebody to get currently? I'm currently doing 100 grams cooked and not sure if this is sufficient. Got to go for it? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, I would maybe look beyond veg as simply, yeah, in terms of simply like a measurement, you know, don't, don't like limit based on, oh, I've got 100 grams of this meal, I can't have any more than that. You want to be having uh, kind of as wide variety of, of veggies and different colors and, and different types as possible. Um, and and like, you talk to any of the like the leading gastroenterologists and like functional medicine practitioners and people that are really invested in, in gut health and, and optimizing the microbiome and therefore overall health. They will, you know, the biggest takeaway is that if you want to have a more diverse and functional microbiome, you need to have a extreme, extremely wide um, diversity of plant-based foods in your diet. So like limiting each meal based on, you know, an arbitrary measurement isn't probably the best practice. But as a, as a method of kind of controlling energy intake, and it kind of is, um, but the the benefit for from veg is is far too great to limit to 100 grams at each meal i mean would you agree with that yeah 100 um yeah i think just from the 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 perspective of like measurements and and weighing stuff like we've got to have some form of like quantifiable um system that we use to actually gauge the amount we're having because obviously all of these foods do um contain you know calories as well um, but from Luke's perspective, as he's trying to say, like, we should be looking at this from like a nutritional yield as opposed to just uh, like a mindless, this is the amount I'm, I'm having per meal, looking more specifically at what nutrients we're taking on board with those vegetables and the actual variety we're actually being able, being able to get in. Um, like for you, mate, like how would you typically programming wise, how would you typically program veg within your within your meal plans? I tend to go pretty heavy on veg and it can can lead you into situations where you basically increase fiber in someone's diet far too quickly and you then kind of get issues with uh, motility through you know so through their digestive tract and um so it's it can be a good thing can be a can't uh, can be a bad thing um but the uh the biggest takeaway with that is is that you, you when you look at how the human diet has changed over the last few centuries like the biggest change has been the amount of fiber like a lot of people say it's the sugar and the fat and all this stuff but when you look at all the the actual research there's some books and on the microbiome they all note this and um, that, that our fiber intake has dropped massively and that's also contributed to the shift in our in the diversity of our microbiomes but the um and what we want to be doing is kind of like building our fiber intake back up but it all comes at like what we can tolerate so you get some people that you can go straight in at like, you know, if we go off this guy's measurements, like 200, 250 grams a meal, and they're absolutely fine. And then you can just kind of build on that 
throughout the process and then you get some people that you go in at 200 grams of fiber and it's not you know they might have some some issue with metabolizing uh what with their bacterial capacity to kind of metabolize fiber um and um and it will kind of ca- cause some some gastrointestinal issues and like distress so you kind of have to dial it back and build it up but it will and then it kind of comes down to being a bit more specific with actual veggie intake and like whether you're consuming veggies that are higher in like FODMAPs and like those fermentable um like higher rates of fermentability and then the the you know whether you've got guys that are higher in prebiotic fiber and stuff like that so so this is again where you want to look at veggies beyond simply measurement system um and like just to you know there to just fill up your stomach basically with each meal um but it is but it is largely individuals you know there's there's like i said people are going to be able to tolerate a certain amount you've got to be able to kind of adapt to that and coach that um as necessary yeah so from from your practice it's like i put a client in front of you now that is having vegetables in two meals a day and it's quite minimalistic and we start to notice that this individual is going to benefit massively from a more diverse, wider range of nutrition within his diet. From the offset, how do we approach increasing the amount of veg in his diet um, and the selection of that veg? Like coaching practices, run with it, what, what would you do? I would personally, would, a lot of it would come down to their appetite level. So if it was someone that struggled with actually getting in veg you maybe look to bring in some sort of greens powder like phytonutrient rich powder that can get the because that's essentially the main reason from a nutritional perspective you get all these phytochemicals from from plants and veggies that you you can't get from uh um from other things and and so greens powder can be valuable in that respect um if someone what's your preferred greens powder my preferred one is one by nutri-advanced um uh, super, nutri superfood plus and it's basically like it's got chocomine in, in which is like a really powerful antioxidant compound but it's also um doesn't have any fermentable like fruit to oligosaccharides which you typically find in a lot of uh greens powders and those can piss people's guts off big time um so and it's got some other cool stuff in but it's um and it makes a damn fine sludge so that that's what's the key <laughs> but the um that that would be a good shout to account for the appetite sort of thing, but then it would be a case of breaking down what veggies are actually palatable. You know, you get some people that can't, um, you know, couldn't actually bring themselves to eat broccoli, but then you've got to basically know that there's tons of other ways to explore that. that yeah. And, um, and kind of gauging their tolerance for certain types of veg. So you get certain people that can't tolerate, um, specific families of veg, you know, like I said, with the fermentability of certain ones and then, and being specific with regards to the functions and benefits of different veggies. So I mean, we'll, we'll touch on some stuff later with regards to um, like fat, uh, the, the ability of some certain veggies to influence fat and metabolize, uh, well, assimilation within the body. And, uh, and then also you can, I mean, I did a post the other day on like the ability of certain veggies to impact nitric oxide levels in the body. So you can, I mean, you can go in deep with actually being specific based on what your client is presenting with. So it's, um, it, I mean, it, it boils down to that really. And if you found, if you look at like higher FODMAP veg and rich kind of higher allium based foods, like would you be more con- conscious of 
increasing them in their in their volume because they're potentially going to have more of a chance to um, trigger digestive a digestive response. I genuinely, and I don't know if there's a lot of people would agree with this, but I tend to pull those guys down initially with most people as a rule of thumb, yeah. and then re like reintroduce them in kind of phases. Um, purely just to, and it, I mean, if someone has absolutely no issues with digestion and they kind of exhibit no kind of bloating and, and excessive flatulence and gas and all that stuff, then you, you know, maybe you probably don't need to, but it's, it's not a bad thing to do out of the gate. Um, but um, I mean, what, what, what would you do? Same, same question. I, I look at what they're having from the offset in terms of what they're already having um, and whether we are getting a response from anything in specific. Um, but just like you would like a, you take like a elimination diet type process where we are looking at the common triggers and the foods, the food groups, and the vegetable groups that those families that we know are probably going to be quite reactive for some people. Like if we're in that stage where we're adding stuff back into the diet or we're increasing the amount of vegetables within the diet, then we're going to have those as our red flags to probably lower them first as we increase volume and then integrate them in once we've found that more stable base where there's no kind of negative yeah. symptoms, if that makes sense. What are your thoughts on like raw versus cooked, like a mixture of raw and cooked from a, a prebiotic perspective as well, mm -hmm. like slow cooked, raw, like what's your perspective? I think there's certain, there's a benefit to having it raw in the set. I mean, there'll be other people that are definitely more um, uh, qualified to speak on this than I am. But my, my current understanding is that there's benefits to having raw in the sense of it leaves a lot of the nutrients intact. But then at the same time, the process of cooking uh, in a lot of cases is required to actually activate many of the key nutrients like preferred way of cooking uh, I would preferentially steam it um, but then I know that um, in certain cases like sauteing stuff is apparently not a bad shout and that's what um, uh, Ryan Carter actually said that like I was talking about broccoli on one of my stories that's a little shout out to Ryan Carter, Live Vite on Instagram. Go for um, the, the I was talking about broccoli, and the, the basically there's an enzyme uh, in broccoli that need is needed to be activated in order to convert uh, a certain compound over to sulfurethane, which is one of the most potent like guys that in, in enhances liver detoxification. Um, and um, and I, I I said steaming is generally the best and steaming across the board will generally, I, I think it's a better shout with regards to how you're going to prepare veggies. Um, but he, he, he's, he's very qualified to talk about this stuff. And apparently according to him, like sort of pan frying or sauteing it on a, on a low heat or something is, is a, is a much better way. But then you look at like, we'll, we'll get some stuff later. I, I think maybe with regards to, when you're looking at certain veggies that have the ability to like bind up bile and they found that steaming though, steaming those types of veggies is far more effective than all other cooking methods with regards to that particular function. So I think yeah. steaming will win out all the time because it would just leave, I think pan frying, sauteing, the high heat has a much higher capacity or propensity to destroy nutrients. Whereas yeah, it's, that, it's, how, it's how that process is done, right? If it's too hot, then you're going to be backfiring that. Um, 
Okay. I hope that answers uh, this individual's question. Uh, I think the, the biggest takeaway for him would be have have a more have more colours of veggies and, and different types and play around with and start looking into because I know he's a coach. Yeah. This guy, so start looking into um, the actual differing roles of, of certain families of veggies and types of veggies and what they can actually do for for health and bodily yeah. function. Like I was on a I was on a Skype with uh, Jake last week, Jake Carter. Um, if you're not following Jake, go follow him. Um, and we were talking about like. Um, food um rotation and looking at the if somebody's kind of narrowed down to a smaller selection of foods because we're trying to run through a protocol or we're trying to eliminate symptoms then um we're looking at like vegetables as being one of those uh, families of foods that we potentially need to be more specific about what that individual is eating and he brought up a fact of um there's up and above like fifty thousand different families of vegetables um available to us so when we're looking at variety like find somewhere that the source is good quality, organic, fresh vegetables. It doesn't need to be organic, but um, some of them do. Um, and, and from my perspective, like if we can pick different varieties each week and pick five to 10 different things each week and just rotate them, like we're getting an abundance of, of nutrition there um, instead of sticking to the same five things or the same three things every single day. Because most people, like most people who are listening to this will be having like a little bit of spinach, a little bit of kale, maybe some broccoli or a carrot or something, and that's probably going to be their entire veg intake. Whereas, like, we need to open our eyes and look at what's actually around us and what benefit that could actually be to us in terms of the microbiome, in terms of our, our immunity, in terms of our health. Because um, all those guys are going to be key players in in chasing optimal body composition as well, right? Mm, absolutely, and that's where I mean, you mentioned quickly the organic stuff. If people are out there listening, go on EWG dot com i don't know i think it's ew uh, dot com i don't know type in ewg dirty dozen list and clean 15 list and that basically gives you a list of the the 12 veggies that are um well fruits and veggies that are most chemically farmed and therefore need to be organic and then the list of the 15 that are the cleanest and don't necessarily need to be organic and you'll probably be surprised at the ones that are on the dirty dozen list and that people over consume and then getting stupid amounts of glyphosate and and um kind of pesticides and then it isn't ideal so um yeah that's one to chuck out there be, be, there are certain ones that you can get away with being not organic and that is quite helpful to know when you're shopping on a budget um and then also you want to look at i mean back to the whole taking on a client thing quickly if you, you know i have on my questionnaire a, a section that kind of gauges their veggie intake and you know there's a, you know how, how many veggies do you eat a day or servings of veggies assuming one handful is a serving and it says like less than five five to ten or ten plus and i've seen one person eating more than ten servings a day you're, you're lucky to see someone eating five to ten and the, this is where you look at like soil depletion and, and like the nutrient depletion in our soils and all this stuff and that the nutrient content of all these veggies nowadays is so much less than what it was if we want to actually get um, adequate levels of, of micronutrients in our diets, we need to be having like 10 to 14 veg servings of veggies a day. And that's where those green powders can come in pretty handy because you can knock off, you know, two, three, four servings of veggies in a scoop and not, and not have to worry about smashing down a couple of kilos of veg every day. And just on that topic, because um, I did have a question um, a few weeks ago that I screenshotted, 
Um, I know you're a big fruit guy and Luke eats a lot of fruit. Um, like the question posed was fruit within a bodybuilding diet is a bit broad, but, um, like what's your general recommendation on fruit intake, fructose and our ability to integrate that within the diet? Because obviously from a fruit perspective and from the fiber and the nutrients we're going to get from fruit, again, it's something we don't want to be eliminating. It's someone we don't want to be leaving out if we can. Yeah. I mean, I smashed the fruit. <laughs> the um, boss. Like the, I think that's one of the areas that is just completely shot to pieces for very little, you know, very little reason in the, in this like this industry, and it kind of boils down to this whole myth that fructose makes you fat, and we know that it can make you fat along with anything else if you overconsume it. But there are certain mechanisms where, if you have bolus doses of fructose in one sitting, you will accelerate fat gain purely because of how it's metabolized but you're not going to get that from eating fruit most fruit dried fruit you might have an issue with that um but it's mostly in like processed things like coke um honey agave nectar and stuff like that where fructose is generally very high and people have a lot at one sitting and it's having a lot in one sitting that's an issue but in, in you know respect to normal fresh pieces of fruit you have to have like 16 bananas in one sitting to actually get that effect so you're not really gonna have an issue with that and um more importantly you need um you know fruit is such an abundant source of these micronutrients and it's a far more palatable source of them so if you can put those in someone's diet then it's not a bad thing to do um and in terms of shaping the microbiome i personally think you're going to get far more benefit from fruit than you will from veg just from the uh i, I mean i think the the there's tends to be more micronutrient availability within fruit um but um and it's also a case like when you factor in that whole thing of fructose can make you fat when you're you know in bolus doses if you're in like caloric deficit and you're and you're still over consuming fruit you're probably still going to be safe from putting on you know excess amounts of body fat purely because of the fact that you're in a caloric deficit if you're pushing someone's food intake and you're in a surplus pushing it from fruit might not might not be the best idea but it can be a very smart way to again keep micronutrient intake pretty high whilst you know you've got room to push carbohydrates for instance or something like that keep carbohydrates quite high at the same time and when you when you talk about or when it's touted that fruit makes you fat and there's the the mechanism of which that could be um could have premise like is this from the transit time of of fructose um through a digestive process uh can be i mean you can get issues with fructose absorption purely mm. if someone has really poor small intestinal health um there's there's receptors like everyone knows glut4 but you, you basically have glut5 receptors in your lining your your enterocytes so you the cells of your intestine and these guys basically are responsible for transporting uh fructose in and um the um the issue that people can have is if they absolutely wreck their small intestine with shitty diet and, and you know highly processed foods or they're eating like quite quite an inflammatory diet and their small intestinal lining is kind of atrophied um or they there are actually conditions where people just have less of these transporters out there and they get that whole mm. fructose malabsorption thing where they can't quite get fructose in and they get kind of 
a fermentation response and like a you know excessive uh, gas from from over consuming fruits and you'll see that if you you know you can test it i had a mentoring call with someone yesterday we spoke about that i just said if you, if you ever suspect someone of that just get them to eat a shitload of dried fruit and see what happens yeah because it is uh, on the premise of when we look at like SIBO and uh, and candida as well that will proliferate from um sugar fermenting within the digestive tract right absolutely um, absolutely okay that's sweet anything else to say on fruit apart from fucking eat it <laughs> yeah don't be afraid of it <laughs> i think it's been it's uh, been something that without doubt has been um demonized over the last couple of years right yeah and crazy and like seeing you know from personal experience when i started driving fruit intake up um along with veggie intake so basically just ensuring micronutrient levels were at a, at a much better place it's made the whole process of building muscle and losing fat a lot easier mm. so so that's one to note sweet okay um all right that's pretty uh pretty comprehensive on both those points um let's jump into uh how do you and luke set up your programs do you like three month blocks where you increase volume and then do three month blocks where you focus on intensity. It could be also like spending three months on mechanical tension and three months on metabolic stress, more or less a question regarding how do you figure out month by month what you'll be programming, let's say for a client looking to improve body composition. You can take this one. Well, first of all, like from the, the different mechanisms that we're looking to create an adaptation, I'd probably cover all of those mechanisms within the same week and within the same day. Yeah. Um, there's no need in kind of periodizing those into a mesocycle. We'd, we'd want to have a full spectrum challenge from, from all of them. Um, but from my perspective, when we're taking on a client from, from the offset, and Luke will agree with me, it's completely relative to their actual training experience in the past and the level that they're coming to you at. Um, if you've got somebody who's holding a higher level of fat mass and is relatively aerobically poor in terms of condition and their ability to clear lactates poor then it's probably going to determine the amount of volume in the workload we give them and potentially the rep ranges they're working within and my general premise for most people if i do have time to work with them before we do that transformation phase or before we move into a prep or whatever um is to to, to build a foundation and start with the 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 minimal least amount of effective volume possible and then start to accumulate volume from there or intensity from there as I start to build their recovery ability, as I start to improve their sleep, as I start to maximize the kind of effectiveness, the nutrient density, the quality of their diet and their calories as well. Because um, for me, like training is going to be reflective of their ability to create energy and take energy in. Um, and for most people, they're burning the candle at both ends where they'll be training like excessively and they'll basically be training an energy system that they're not fueling um, and they'll become very, very burnt out. Um, so from my perspective, it's stripping it back. We're not going to necessarily periodize different goals in different timeframes. Like I'd work with the least amount of effective volume um, and try and drive intensity as high as possible whilst their ability to recover improves. I'm not going to start to train someone in that threshold when I know that their recovery is going to be hindered initially, if it is, mm -hmm. if it is hindered. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it kind of, I think the whole thing, model of periodization and all the varying models of periodization are not so applicable to the realms of hypertrophy. And when you're looking mm -hmm. at building a physique, you can't be so. Can you, can you say that again, mate? Sorry. I'm just going to quickly play something on the background. 
Just say that. Just say that one more time. What the, the periodization bit? The periodization doesn't really apply to the realms of hypertrophy. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to use that by an old podcast, right? You can carry right. on. So, no, no, no. <laughs> so it doesn't really apply to the realms of hypertrophy in the, in the sense that when you're building a physique, you, you're not going to see. I mean, in the realms of fat loss, you you you, you see change relatively quickly. When you're building someone's physique, you're not going to see change, you know, especially if they're natural for for quite a while. So you can't really afford to keep chopping and changing. It doesn't make a lot of sense to. Um, but and yeah, and that's where you have got to be quite, you know, sure in what you're doing and work with someone who actually knows and you trust in the process. In the sense of, you, there'll be a lot of people out there that go in and they're like, oh, you know, this in this block i'm going to smash my chest with all the volume possible because it's my weak body part and i think i just need more rather than a refining of how i'm doing it um and um and they basically chuck the kitchen sink in it and get very you know for a short amount of time and then and then they kind of expect this huge result and it's like no you, you know when you're looking to build muscle that's something you've got to commit to for for months and and you've got to be very sure in the process and use and and, and this is something i do is is you know if i get someone coming to me with a weak body part typically you'll see someone go initial phase we're going to prioritize volume across that weaker body part i tend to actually reduce volume across into a weaker body part and just make sure that execution is impeccable and you genuinely you do actually see i'd say that i mean you will see some pretty profound change just from that alone and a lot of the times it's not that people need volume they just need to refine how they're actually training something and that's where yeah i think the talking of periodization in hypertrophy doesn't really apply but you talk about execution and then just i mean there, there'll be differing phases in all the plans me and callum do but the ultimate goal really remains the same and, and the actual changes that come within training aren't that profound would you agree yeah yeah 100 percent, and like you you can see that from um especially from coaching in-house and when you have online clients come to visit you and they're like right i can't get this to respond or i can't connect with this or this isn't growing or whatever whatever the question is you actually take them into the into the gym environment and actually train through that muscle there'll be so many flaws that we can pick up and optimize just from getting hands-on um so it just shows that volume and, and and programming and periodization is an arbitrary thing if we can't actually make the the stimulus efficient in the first place and like luke said like i would prefer somebody to halve the volume they're doing on a muscle that's, that's not responding and increase the efficiency in which they're taxing that as opposed to double the volume is still create a shit stimulus is not going to create an adaptation. Yeah. Do you agree? Um, okay. That's sweet. Uh, also probably a thing to realize on there is like looking at, I know Luke's big on this in regards to programming as well. Looking at like, if we don't have something responding or we're frequently getting injured or there's aches or niggles, like what around that structure is actually creating the weakness and what around that structure is actually creating our inability mm -hmm. to progress that movement. Um, I've had a lot of issues with my shoulder, had a lot of issues with my with my spine my lumbar starts to kick in and um it's something we've worked around by not actually addressing that specific area by addressing elsewhere um and for most people like more will not equate to a better response it's reining it back and realizing what actually is the weak weak link here 
and starting to structurally become more stable and then start to progress from there. Do you agree? Yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, we could just leave this for people to think about. When you look at something, you mentioned the shoulder, when you, and like we were talking about the chest, where, when you look at the shoulder joint itself, like most, that's the integrity of that joint is generally a product of all the, the muscles that attach around it. So if you have varying guys around there that aren't doing their job as well as they could, then all the other guys are going to be suffering as well. So when you, if you've got someone who has an issue in their chest, investigate further. That's what I'll say for now. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Sweet. Okay. Um, this. Do you want to go through the, uh, the touring question now? Yeah, is that the next one? Yeah, well, we're on 30, 32 minutes now, so let's make this the last one for this episode. This will probably take us up to um, the next 15 minutes because Luke likes to talk. Uh, right, Luke's actually been like drawling at the mouth all podcasts to answer this because he's so passionate about it, so I'm just going to let him just let him loose. Um, question, do you recommend taurine as a supplement, and if so, when? Seen some research saying before workout is best, but then others saying after to calm the nervous system is best. I also have seen something about helping with sleep if taken before bed. Do you have any recommendations? Not sure. Uh, not sure I have seen you mention taurine before. Yeah, sweet. Okay. So taurine, um, timings, applicability, benefits, go. So I'm going to go out a disclaimer. I don't actually know a hell of a lot about taurine. He does. <laughs> so, um, but there was some stuff I was digging into the other day and, and it flagged up and it will, will it's in relation to stuff we've been talking about as well, but in re, with respect to it, so that that part of it is not going to relate massively to this guy's question, but he'll hopefully still find this interesting. But re, in relation specifically to the question, yes, I think taurine is a good supplement and I think you're going to get way more benefit out of using it post-workout window um and um the uh purely because of what the, the guy mentions is, is the uh the like calming the nervous system because touring basically has some interactions with uh with gaba in the brain and um so it will have like and gaba is like one of the the main inhibitory neurotransmitters so having it pre-workout and having like the you know essentially taurine will bind to GABA A and B receptors in the brain um, and uh, or in the nervous system and um, stimulate GABA to some degree, which will potentially, um, it could downregulate your, your ability to perform at, at quite a high level within training. So having it pre-training, I probably wouldn't agree with. Having it post-training, and this is where me and Callum have spoken about this. Um, say the saying, say it, say it. What, flipping the switch. Nice. Boom. Um, in terms of you know getting into that parasympathetic state post training, including taurine in that window will be of more benefit purely because it, it has quite a profound ability to actually influence GABA, and also um, it has an ability to help with glucose disposal and stuff like that. So, so having it in that window is a good shout. Um, it also uh, it, and that's you know having it pre sleep as well for the same reason people people often look to at ways of stimulating GABA going into sleep, which is why you see the use of um, Fenibut and things like that to actually uh, essentially artificially raise GABA levels. Um, and that's, uh, 
you know, touring could be another way to do that. It's also why people get a benefit from, you know, having alcohol because you get alcohol that um, stimulates GABA receptors in a similar fashion, but get alcohol will actually reduce the amount of REM sleep you get. So touring, you, you won't see that. So touring is not a bad shout. As for doses, I'm not actually sure. Like I said, I don't know a hell of a lot about it. So you have to check that one out. Um, with uh, Just to stop you there, with the alcohol thing, um, like the typical thing of clients coming to you saying, yeah, if I have a glass of red wine before bed, I sleep like a log. Like the premise of then getting to, getting to sleep in the first place and falling into a sleep cycle will be potentially quicker. But then their ability to actually stay within the deep, cycle, deep sleep cycle and maintain sleep efficiency will be hindered, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, carry on. Um, and that's, uh, so we do, that's kind of, with respect to what he asked, that's, that's what yeah. we're useful for. Um, but, and then, and then this is, so what we mentioned earlier about bile, this is what I, I dug into the other day, which is why I thought we could like, touch on this. And this will kind of be a little bit of a snippet of what we'll talk about when we go into like small intestine and depth, but you, what you basically, um, we, we, when taurine plays a crucial role in bile formation. Um, and bile is the the you know product that is produced by our liver that helps us um, emulsify fat in our in our digestive tract, which so the fat can then be absorbed, and that goes for fat and all the fatty um, fat soluble components like vitamins A, D, E, K, um, you know all the omega threes, omega sixes, um, and um, what we. Uh, when you're looking at how bile is actually formed, you basically have bile pigments, which are pretty useless, not really worth mentioning. Um, and then bile salts, which are the guys that actually emulsify um, the dietary fats. And these salts are produced from cholesterol, which is uh, broken down in the liver to cholic acid. And this other one with a really long name, um, which I have written here, actually, kinodeoxycholic acid, which is just a, a longer one, that you basically get these bile acids then bind with glycine and taurine to form bile salts, and that's where you get uh, tauracholic acid, glycocholic acid, and, and the other one with the, with the long name. Um, and they're the, the primary bile salts produced by the liver. You also have secondary bile salts, and that's where people will know the, the supplement Tudka, which is uh, tauro-urso-deoxycholic acid, which is a secondary bile acid that kind of gets synthesized within the, uh, the digestive tract. And they actually extracted that supplement from bears, which is pretty messed up. But um, that's, uh, that's an interesting fact. Um, the, but w when you're looking at the role of bile, you know, in terms of how it gets, uh, how it's so key in absorbing all these fat, soluble nutrients, stuff like that. If someone is deficient potentially in, their taurine in, in taurine and their ability, or anglycine really but taurine is pretty rich in meats um so if someone isn't eating a lot of meats so or they're vegetarian stuff like that and they're still following some high fat type diet or you know they're, they're not only going to be at risk of a lowered ability to produce bile with the lack of taurine but they're, gonna, they're potentially going to have a lowered ability to absorb a lot of these fat soluble nutrients into their diet um and, um, I mean, what do you reckon so far? I agree. Yeah, I agree. I think, like, from a as a conditional amino acid, uh, the the requirement supplementation, like, we will benefit, most people will benefit from that, um, especially in the post-training window, especially from 
um, the perspective of in, interacting with the nervous system. Um, and obviously from a bar perspective, as you just said, it can, it can have value. I'd normally use this um, taurine, three to five grams, um, for a lot of people, especially if their training is more neurally taxing, um, post-training in that in a kind of post-workout window or post-training, or even in their intro as well, because absorption is going to take a little bit of time anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing to note, if um, people are assisted and they're using clenbuterol, clenbuterol will deplete electrolytes, um, including potassium, and it will also have a, uh, a, a depleting effect on taurine as well. Um, when we look at taurine as an agent, um, and potassium is an agent. When we lose both of those uh, nutrients, we increase our ability to cramp. And if anyone's had cramp using Clend, you'll know what I mean. Uh, it feels like you're going to die. Um, and also the reduction of taurine concentrations in the heart caused by uh, the use of clenbuterol, um, which is a beta-2 agonist drug, um, which will impact the fat cell, is a concern as taurine has shown to have protective properties for the tissues around the heart. And also when you look at potassium as, a, as an electrolyte um, potassium is is needed for cardiac contractions and to keep the regularity of the of the cardiac contractions um, functional so when we lose the efficiency and the saturation of both of those nutrients we increase the risk of using that so if anyone's using i know it's kind of like prep season now and everyone's getting shredded and stuff it's all funny games but um just kind of consider the effects that um, taurine supplementation, three to five grams for most people. Maybe if you're a bigger, a bigger individual, then maybe five to 10 grams um, will have benefit if you are using any beta two agonists. Nice. Okay. Nice. Is that, is that everything on taurine? Pretty much. I can't think of anything else. No. Um, I think we'll leave it at that because we're at 40, for 42 minutes. Yeah, I mean, that, that was nice. And that was that was some cool information there. I even learned something. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So we'll wrap that up here. Uh, you will have the first proper series coming to you very, very soon um, that will be uh, a kind of more in-depth overview of the digestive processes going from start to end. Um, and that will be really, really cool. Um, we, we've done a lot of research there and we're going to be dropping some bombs, um, applicable bombs on you um, in regards to digestion, in regards to digestive tract and digestive processes that you can go away and action immediately. Um, anything else to say on your side, Luke? No. I, I mean, thank you for joining us. Yeah. And guys, if you've got any like specific topics you want to, you want us to cover in more depth on like a series the, the the two biggest ones we've had so far are digestion and stress and sleep and those are the three that we're going to dig into initially which i think will be pretty huge subjects to to start to delve into and examine um but if there's anything that you think will be of value uh, even to yourself or you know as a as a broader spectrum then um drop us a message on instagram um is it the muscle mentors or at muscle mentors it's the muscle mentors isn't it the Mental Mentors, or just either um, see our physique or biophysiques. Um, and yeah, just give us some ideas if you do have, have anything we want to discuss. I'll be doing, and Luke will be doing, stories every now and then when we're doing a Q&A episode just to gather some more questions um, so we can collate some more topics together. Um, but yeah, we've covered like four things there, and it's taken up to 45 minutes, which is pretty bang on. Um, that's pretty much us sorted. Good. Anything else to say, Luke? No. See you soon. Okay. We will see you soon, guys. Thank you for listening. See you.